1: Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast where we speak with authors of music books, bios, history, criticism, cultural takes, and everything in between. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Jen Larson, and she's the author of a brand new book called Hit Girls, Women of Punk in the USA, 1975-1983. to 1983. These are the women who shattered stereotypes and eardrums in every city, in every scene throughout the country. Welcome, Jen. Hello. Well, congratulations on your book. It is a quite definitive and truly a deep dive.
0: Thank you. Um, thank you for having me.
1: Well, let's set up some timelines here. You know, I was surprised at how early in the 70s these scenes that you feature in the book started to develop these bands started developing quite a bit before the girls to the front or the riot girl movement developed. Is that right?
0: Yeah. Um, at least a decade and a half before, uh, especially on the coast in the Midwest. So, you know, I was surprised too. Time always confounds me. And since I was born after the timeline this book covers, it's not like this was something I was finding in my memory. It was something I had to discover through evidence you know, recordings, newspaper clippings, video, firsthand accounts from living artists, audiences. So, yeah, women were playing in bands at Max's Kansas City, CBGB's, you know, you have Blondie, Tina, The Talking Heads, Patti Smith, Ruby and the Rednecks. And women were playing in London in the mid-70s, too, you know, X-Ray Specs and The Slits. So, you know, the punk explosion, I guess, is kind of a contagion or like something sort of a subconscious. I think it could be either way. So a lot of the artists I talked to, um, you know, had seen the Ramones, or were learning about Patti Smith through Cream Magazine or whatever. And the scenes either emerged independently in other cities, or they were just kind of a, a response to that. You know, women were feeling more empowered in general. You know, this was a period um, at the tail end of the second wave of feminism and like some no man's land between second and third wave feminism. I think it's important to point out that not all of these artists um, wanted the fact that they were women to be relevant to their work.
1: Right.
0: Yeah. A lot of them wanted their work to be seen as like gender neutral. So it was really interesting. There were a lot of women I talked to that kind of said like that they were kind of non-binary before that that term existed. And I think another really important point to make is that Riot Girl was really different because it was like an actual movement, right? It was like cohesive and documented and it was explicitly feminist, whereas, you know, a lot of these artists weren't necessarily some of them were, some of them weren't.
1: They were just punks. Yeah. You know, I fit that timeline where at Cree Magazine to me growing up in the South was my Bible. And, you know, I was one of the kids who listened to that stuff that nobody else did. I love the Slits, you know, being a huge reggae fan and a Clash, McJones guy. The Slits, I love them. And, you know, most of those bands, you know, they're they're super cool. And uh, it's interesting how punk rock had that inspiration for a lot of people to just pick up a guitar, you know. And it's, it's really interesting to see that it, there were no boundaries as your book goes deep. Yeah. So you point out there are a lot if we've spoken about a couple of famous invisible women musicians of this period, and they have books and documentaries out now. And in this book, you chose instead to focus on some of the more obscure acts. Can you break down the whys and the what's of, of what you wanted the book to accomplish?
0: I thought it was really important to archive the stories of women that came before riot girl in like in one place. Um, they seem to kind of be floating around all over the place And then I also thought it was just, like, really important to archive the history and to, like, emphasize that women truly co-created punk music. Even though there are a handful of relatively well-known, appreciated, visible U.S. punk women, most people still have a really hard time understanding how integral women were to punk. You know, people kind of have this idea that women were still outliers or, like, that they plumbed onto the genre and didn't have autonomy and... You know, that, like, all the other women that were involved were just, like, audience members. And, you know, that's because in a lot of media, this is how women are portrayed. In a lot of the books and documentaries, there are, like, 20 men interviewed for every, like, one woman. Even sometimes more drastic of a ratio. But, you know, in the reality, in the advent of punk, it wasn't rare at all for women to be involved in the creative process. Helen Reddington, who was in bands and wrote a lot about the U.K., said something like it was actually more rare for bands not to have women at the beginning of punk. Women were really involved in the creative process and women were leading the way in many scenes, sometimes even forging their own paths. But you know, in this remembering of punk, people think it was like a boys club and there's been a lot of academic writing about the forgetting of women in grunge or, you know, within punk or just in art movements in histories in general just the names of women getting erased but sometimes like their work not surviving. You you interviewed um Heather Augustine?
1: Yeah, uh Heather Augustine for uh Women in Jamaica and yeah. also um the author of the Riot Girl book, Sarah Marcus. Sarah Marcus. Yeah. yeah.
0: I was able to listen to both of those and um yeah, I found a lot of commonalities and you know, I with Heather's book, you know, I think she said something like for every 100 books written about Bob Marley, she wanted to make sure there was a book at least one book written about the women who were, you know, pioneering, um, in Jamaican, uh,
1: music. You know, as I mentioned, as a huge reggae fan, I I love that stuff, particularly the rock steady period where there are hugely influential women. It was fun to talk about that. And, you know, the early punk, especially the UK days, you know, if you go through Cree Magazine and maybe they weren't in the bands yet, and it's important to say yet, but you see these pictures of the Sex Pistols and the Clash, there's always women there, whether they were the muses or the girlfriends or just people who helped push the cultural style and fashion style, they were always there.
0: Absolutely. I was going to say that, like a lot of the fashioning, like Vivian Westwood and, you know, yeah, I just, I wanted to provide as much evidence as possible to dispel this myth that women weren't involved or that they were, like, sidelined before Riot Girl, or, like, all that kind of stuff because it, it's there. Like, the evidence is there, and I just wanted to, like, put it in one one
1: place. And one of the things that comes across really, really clearly in your book, um, whether it be the interviews or the forwards and the intros, which are both excellent, is the excitement and passion of music. And at that young of an age, which it certainly hit me, I know it hit you, you have a very cool backstory, and it really helped inform your book. So can you tell our readers about how you got started in music and your bands?
0: Um, Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I don't necessarily want to talk too much about myself. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's special when anyone realizes that music is important to them. I think it's kind of this this way that we kind of discover something about ourselves that's like sort of, you know, not to sound too woo-woo, just kind of like this energy and this artistic spirit that like is personal, but also is a way that we connect with other people. And so it's just something that like is transcendental in a way. For me, um, my sister and I just were actually I'm wearing my my uh, monkeys reunion tour (laughs) right now. Um, My sister and I got really obsessed with the monkeys from some like Disney Channel, you know, uh, documentary about them. And we got into the Beatles and a lot of like 60s pop and stuff like that. And we wanted to play and we liked a lot of like alternative music in the nineties and we wanted to play music. And so we got guitars and she's my stepsister. So she lived with my dad and my stepmom. and then my, my mom remarried and we moved to the suburbs.
2: Hello Pantheon podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price.
0: And so I didn't really have any friends, you know, I first moved there and I stayed in my room and played my guitar. And I just wrote a lot of sad girl songs in high school. And I tried to join a punk band and the boys didn't really want me in it. I wasn't playing the right, you know, the the chords in the right way or like whatever they were listening, like MXPX and no effects and stuff. And I was like playing all these arpeggios and like (laughs) open chords and stuff. (laughs) So, you know, I just kept writing songs and I'd play at coffee shops and I looked for people to play with in college and everybody in college was all into music theory and they knew how to like harmonize and I didn't know how to do any of that. So I ended up kind of finding my my people eventually, um, people who were really into like the Pixies and the Buzzcocks and stuff that I was, you know, into. And, you know, it just kind of naturally turned into just playing more of a punk garagey style. I never really thought of myself as punk necessarily. The word punk is so broad and so even in this book it's like the word punk almost doesn't mean punk so yeah so I you know I ended up forming an mostly all-girl band we had some guys in and out of the band um and stayed together for five years or so and
1: well it's it's a common theme you know because of quote-unquote how easy it was to play it pushed a lot of people to started playing an instrument that maybe they didn't know how. And I think a lot of that comes from that energy and that passion. And, and I can do this, you know, you know, that was a special time in, in music, I think. And, you know, there's that old saying like only a hundred people saw the Sex Pistols, but every one of them started a band. Yeah. You know, which I think is right on. Yeah, totally. You know, we mentioned the Riot Girl movement. And one of the things in this book that I loved about that book is there's some really cool band names. They're so great and and so creative. Did you have any favorites? And we'll talk about the different areas. But there's so many. Uh, you know, Nikki and the Corvettes. I think was one that I was just like, oh my god, I have to go listen to this band.
0: Yeah, uh, Nikki and the Corvettes are amazing. Um, Nikki Corvette. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to say I don't like any of the names. So it's you know it's it's difficult. But I I picked out a few that I really like. Part of it is I like some of the stories behind the band names. Um feel free. <laughs> the dish rags. Um I just think is a great name. And the story behind it is that they were booked for a show and like the promoter kept asking them for a band name and they didn't have one. You know, the promoter kept pestering them and finally just gave them a name. The name they gave them was originally Dee Dee in the Dish Rags, and Dee Dee was after their favorite Ramon. And then the band kind of jokes in this this short documentary I watched um, about them that like she probably just looked at them and thought they, they she was standing in the kitchen and looked at the dish rags. She's like, "That's what they look like, so just name them Dee Dee in the Dish Rags." Um, <laughs> you know, they're like unkempt hair, and they're just you know like all that their their outfits, their baggy clothes, and stuff. So.
1: I thought that was cute. Yeah, that's that's really perfect. But there's a a lot of band names that are maybe not politically, socially correct these days, or, or more probably especially then. You know, a lot of sexually adventurous and humorous and challenging names. And some found they couldn't even get on posters or the marquees because of the name of their band. And I'm just curious, you know, was that intentional? Was it trying to reclaim some of their identity? Was it just pushing the envelope? Did they just not care? Did they, because a lot of it is very funny.
0: Yeah. Some of the examples, I guess, are like the Clitz, Bitch, and then Sheer Schmegma. They were originally Sheer Schmegma, and then they were like Ted Bundy and the Frack Girls, which, you know, these are like obscene, crude names. But yeah, I think it boils down to that. I think. You know, whether the bands were wanting to be brazen or shocking or just silly, the fact that they were naming themselves these these crude names means that they had autonomy and that they were demonstrating that they weren't trying to, like, please everybody. I mean, the mere fact that they were involved in counterculture and playing music was a statement in reclaiming their identities in and of itself. You know, women weren't supposed to be doing this kind of stuff.
1: And nobody thought they'd make millions off of it, which is a highly different approach these days, for sure. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. We're speaking with Jen Larson. She's the author of a new book called Hit Girls Women of Punk in the USA, 1975 to 1983. So I mentioned uh, the opening pieces in your book, which I really, really enjoyed. There's, you know, Anne Magnuson, Alice Bagg, and Susie Cream Cheese. Uh, Can you explain to our listeners what their roles were in music? And also, if you knew them prior to writing the book and reaching out and what their reaction to the book was?
0: Well, yeah. So Anne was an actress, a performance artist involved in the creative happenings at Club 57 and the Mud Club in Manhattan. She was one of the founders of Paul Salama. Which wasn't ever really intended to be a band, um, it was just supposed to be a performance art piece. She was she's a friend of uh, my publisher, Christina Ward. So Christina had gotten in touch with Anne. I still actually haven't gotten to talk to Anne yet, no. so I'm excited, hoping that I get to you know some point soon. Alice Bag is probably one of the more influential, well known artists in the book. The Bags was one of the quintessential bands in L.A. She's a huge supporter of women, people of color, queer people, anyone that's kind of otherized in making music. Um, she's a huge advocate for people making space for self in music in a way that's maybe louder, more diligent than, you know, anyone. The first time I met Alice, actually, I like raised my hand at a Q and a at like a coffee shop she was playing at in Chicago. I don't know if she knows I'm the same person mm-hmm. as that, you know, like I've I've had a lot of different interactions with Alice over the years. I did my interview with her over email and I had found her essay that she wrote like on her blog and just asked her if I was able to use it because I thought it was it was great Susie Cream Cheese her liner notes were originally printed in the Neo Boys sooner or later EP Um, they just really struck a chord with me and I reached out to the Neo Boys and to Susie to ask if we could you know republish it I think that what she wrote sort of a precursor to riot girl that kind of energy of just like seeing these girls on the street and being like who are they and wanting to be their friend and wanting to do what they're doing and um i just really love
1: that so you know, all three of them set up the, what comes after very, very nicely. And let's talk about that a little bit. Um, your book is divided into sections by geography of the US. And I'm curious what the idea was behind this. I mean, was it as simple as remembering and presenting the bands that you found? Or did they have certain commonalities, music or otherwise within these scenes by location?
0: Yeah, I think maybe a, a bit of both. I think that like, for me, it was an organizational thing um, in my brain. It just made sense. In some cities also, like, there were cohesive scenes, like L.A., Portland, San Francisco, New York. So, like, the stories between the bands overlap, even some of the members overlap. You know, in New York, there are all these micro scenes, like, there's the art punk stuff, and then there was, like, the no wave, which is kind of, like, against anti-punk, actually, in, like, some of the more rock stuff over there. And, like, L.A. bands, like, had all these fascinating crossovers, You know, I mean, like, Charlotte Caffrey is in the eyes. She was, like, one of the go-go's. In a lot of those scenes, those specific ones I mentioned, L.A., Portland, San Francisco, New York, it was, like, they were cohesive. They were friends with each other, living together, you know. So I thought that was important. You know, I also thought it was important to feature some of the bands who, like, weren't integrated in these scenes, sort of like the outcasts, you know, the outcasts of the outcasts, like the bands who weren't, like, cool or whatever. But I was also amazed to learn that in cities like Chicago and Detroit, some of the bands, like, Talking to them now, like had no idea of each other's existence. Mm. No, yeah, pretty. It was pretty incredible to me. So like, maybe in some way, like it's the way the cities are designed or whatever. It yeah, it was it was very weird. It was like even in Milwaukee, the scenes were more like the bands knew more about each other, or like bands in Akron knew more about bands in Cincinnati (laughs) than some of the Chicago bands knew of each other.
1: Yeah, I would say Boston, Steve, you can jump in and agree with me or disagree, but it has a pretty fraternal scene. I mean, I think most of the bands that I've seen through the years, and I came here in college, uh, when the height of Boston rock or, you know, right around then, and there's always a trail, you know, between some of these bands and and who they were. And it's pretty interesting to watch that because they're still around, they're still bands, you know. Um, Do you think there is a difference in, style, look, sound, philosophy. But because you played in some that were all girl bands and then some that had male members. And I know that some of the folks in, interviewed in your book women talk about uh their issues at times with that. How did that play out?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Like I feel like every band kind of had different experiences. And like, you know, there were some of the mixed gender bands, some of the guys in the bands had more experience playing than others. You know, in, in in a lot of ways, a lot of the women know that, you know, the guys had more confidence getting up on stage. This is generalizing because, you know, you can't really, like, say this is true of every single you know artist. I think it is fair to say that, like, the all-girl bands got, like, way more shit than the women um, who were in bands with guys or even bands where there was, like, an equal gender divide. Like, for the most part, a lot of the bands that were, like, all women, whether they were or weren't, would just get called, like, dykes or, like, lesbians or, you know in a derogatory way, um, just because they were like, what are a group of women hanging out, you know? The women that were in bands with all guys, I know a lot of ways, like, felt more protected, maybe. Other guys or other women in the audience weren't going to come after them in the same way. And I think this is, like, something that is more true for anybody who's otherized, you know, for queer women or women of color or women of size or just any identity factor that, like, can, you know, otherize somebody. So in terms of the sound, I think... It's complicated because, you know, band sound is based on the dynamics of the members, you know, their experience, their taste, their temperament, their influences or any number of things. And
1: every band has creative differences, I'm sure. There was definitely some pushback from women in the audience to women bands and bands that had women in them. And it seemed to me, and this is just from reading your book, it was aimed at sort of women that maybe exploited this more glamorous sexuality bit in a fun way. But of course, there were girls in the audience with their boyfriends who took issue.
0: Yeah, I know it's you know, it could be for a number of reasons, like the the discomfort um, that some of these audience members are feeling, whether it was like jealousy or some weird antithetical sort of like adherence to conservative values. Like, I, I don't I don't know. I it, I can't totally make sense of it, but it's like, you know, some people will call it like internalized misogyny. But yeah, there's there's definitely like a level of discomfort from everybody um, seeing women on stage. And maybe that's just because people aren't used to it, too. People maybe just like not expecting it or.
1: Well, as any good music book does and yours is one, I often put it down and went to the Internet to explore. And I was surprised looking through the the geographic groups. You know, I would always know one or two and they might have been the bigger ones. And I'm not talking about the ones that aren't in the book, but. Uh, the Nuns, you know, that had Alejandro Escovedo. you know, the the Avengers, Penelope Houston, Jane County, of course, uh, the Plasmatics, you know. I mean, how did you discover these people? I mean, was it strictly a local scene, word of mouth thing?
0: I was born in 85. I wasn't even like a twinkle in my parents' eye. <laughs> the bands you named, I think, are the ones that I would imagine music folks like yourself would know. I wouldn't consider to be the more popular of the bands that are like, in here but for a lot of the other ones you know I was given recommendations from friends to get different compilations originally this idea was like I wanted to write about you know women playing around the world during this time and I ended up having to narrow the scope down to just the U.S. and in the U.S. alone just these time period like 75 to 83 just this time period and then I still wasn't able to include like all of the bands like there's still right. hundreds of bands during this time period in the u.s that i wasn't able to include so it's it's pretty intense um i found a lot of it through those compilations youtube was like a really 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 um important tool for discovering a lot of these bands um discogs sometimes i'd randomly just run across something on like discogs um and it would like lead me to you know something and then there were some word of mouth things from the artists themselves you know i have all the old search and destroys So I was, I was digging through those, but they, you know, they didn't get to a lot of the bands in the Midwest. Uh, There were a bunch of bands from the Southwest and I didn't even include a Southwest region. So like, there's so much information that it's like, there's, there could be volumes and (laughs) many editions. you know.
1: Um, Let's narrow that down and I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, just a little bit, but um, (laughs) you know, for some of our listeners who don't know any of this, right. You know, you break it into five sections, your book and if you could just you know either tell me a band or a song that they absolutely should check out from this period i think that would be fun are you up for it
0: ooh yeah it's hard to narrow it down
1: yeah top of the head then yeah uh, the midwest
0: um i would say one of the first ones that i discovered that i was just blown away by was uh, the band chai pig they did some collaborative work with Devo, so I think that people are into just kind of weirdo Akron stuff would be be into Shy Pig. I think that's how you say it. I don't even know.
1: <laughs> the South, which, you know, I have to admit, I was surprised that was such a scene down there.
0: Yeah, like Austin was so interesting. Um, there's a song I can never get out of my head. It's by a band called F Systems. It's called People. They have like a really weird and cool video you can look up on YouTube, too.
1: Cool. Uh, how about the Northwest?
0: One of my favorite discoveries um, in the Northwest is a band called Art Object. They have a really weird song called Ride the Metro. You know, yeah, I guess I'm picking all the weird songs that I just I think are so, so fun and interesting. Yeah. Ride the Metro by Art Object.
1: We support weird stuff, too. So (laughs) Um, the West Coast and there's a southern and northern part, obviously. So you can just give me one or you can give me two. It doesn't matter.
0: All right. Yeah, I'll go with like the San Francisco area. Um, There's a band called Wilma who has a song called Fast Fascist. That's it's a great song. Um, And then if people haven't heard this song, um, I would definitely check out Charlotte Caffrey's one of her first bands, The Eyes, had a song called Don't Talk to Me. Kathleen Hanna talks about it in um, the Go-Go's documentary. So there are people who maybe heard that song, but I, I definitely recommend listening to it.
1: Good stuff. And uh, well, I'm going to definitely uh, check them out, and I hope our listeners will as well. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. We're speaking with Jen Larson. She's the author of a brand new book called Hit Girls Women of Punk in the USA, 1975 to 1983. I want to ask what you're up to now. Uh, you just released a book, and I know you teach. Are you still playing in bands? Can listeners find you?
0: Yeah. So my my old band Swimsuit Edition, I still have a lot of our vinyl hanging out. So if anybody wants some records, I, you can go to our band Bandcamp and order them.
1: The name of the bands?
0: Swimsuit Edition, um, with an A edition, like a plus sign. Um, and then I have a band called Jen and the Dots. We had a one four song EP. It's on Bandcamp. And then my current band is called Beastie, also spelled weird B E A S T I I. We have stuff on Spotify. And Bandcamp, um, we've only released tapes, but we're working on a full length because we have a we have a really great lineup right now. I'm really excited
1: about it. And plus, cassettes are coming back. Hopefully, it's not eight track, but cassettes I keep hearing are, are coming. <laughs> back. Well, lastly, you know, uh, I went I went to your sites, and uh, it's amazing. You know, I'm always intrigued by cover art. That's what I did for years, and and this period had just some fascinating stuff design wise and, and it was most of it was a lot of fun some of it was a little crazy but you know i'm just curious what you think of of the visual aspects of some of these periods
0: a lot of the bands either had like photographers or painters or you know other visual artists in the band or they were just good friends with other visual artists so i think there's like this diy collaborative spirit to um, a lot of the cover art which i really appreciate
1: uh any more books in your future I know this is just coming out, so that's a crazy <laughs> question to ask.
0: Yeah, it's funny because it's I've been sitting around like staring at the wall for the last few <laughs> months and thinking, what am I gonna do next? You know, I actually never imagined I'd write nonfiction first because I have a lot of you know, I've been writing a lot of fiction for the last, I don't know, a couple decades. But yeah, I have I have some ideas. I don't necessarily want to reveal secrets, but I have some I have some ideas for
1: Well, when it it comes out, drop us a line and we'll we'll help you spread the word. (laughs) Jen Larson uh, is great to talk to you. Her book is Hit Girls, Women of Punk in the USA, 1975 to 1983. It is definitive for this era. I learned a ton. uh, And I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you. If you would like to buy this book, please go to allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive podcasts there as well and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at FullSound.com. Finally, big ups to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one of a kind music played throughout the podcasts. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. Please support local and independent writers and musicians. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an allmusicbooks.com podcast and now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.